If you're looking for a truly undiscovered backdoor experience in Europe, you'll find it in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an insider's view of Slovenia. After peacefully breaking away from Yugoslavia, it remains off the beaten path. It surprises visitors with majestic alpine scenery, friendly English-speaking locals, and bargain prices. Two of my European tour guide friends, Tina Hiti and Marjan Kriskovic, are here in the studio to let us in on the little publicized delights of their charming country, where agritourism, the slow food movement, progressive democracy, and the polka are all cool. And what part of America could be more different from Europe than Arizona and New Mexico? Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, it's another session of Road Trip USA with our friend Jamie Jensen, exploring Indian country and the scenic back roads of the great Southwest. It's all coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, right after this. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're taking some detours to more of the roads less traveled. Two of my Eastern European friends will boast of the diverse attractions of their fascinating, yet remarkably untouristed country, Slovenia, probably the most fortunate part of the former Yugoslavia. And, coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, it's another session of Road Trip USA with our friend Jamie Jensen. He'll take your calls and offer tips on exploring Indian country and the scenic back roads of the great Southwest. It's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we visit Slovenia. Not Slovakia, but Slovenia. And I've got two friends with me from Slovenia, Tina Hiti from a beautiful resort called Bled, and Marjan Kriškovic from the capital, Ljubljana. Great to have you folks here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we're talking about Slovenia, and I mentioned Slovakia because it's confusing to us Americans. I mean, this, these are all these new countries now, and just last year, 10 new countries, I believe, joined the EU, and Slovenia was one of them. How is it being part of the uh, European Union from a Slovenian point of view? Well, uh, Slovenia has gained quite a few advantages by joining the Union since it is a very small country. But it uh, had to give up quite a bit of its sovereignty and other things. There will be problems with um, the small um, businesses and um, farmers who have traditionally very small farms in the Alps and things like that. But on the long term, there will be mainly advantages more than disadvantages. So now you're competing with the big boys. Exactly. Slovenia is a small country, isn't it? Very small. How many people? There's uh, almost 2 million people, 1.98 million, almost there, but it's apparently never going to make it. Just 2 million people (laughs) in your country. Towards the end of the century, there should be less than 1 million. Well, the population is aging. The people are thinking more of their careers, getting married at a later age, having less children. and Okay, so well, now you've got this new freedom, no more of this goulash communism or anything like that. Exactly. You've got capitalism. You've got a chance to make some big bucks. So That's right. Let's not have kids. Let's get a car. <laughs> is that the idea? That's the idea. Wow. <laughs> Tina? Comes at an expense. Is that, is that what you see in, in uh, yeah. the resorts also? It's the same thing, yeah. All and right. tourism will bring just everything up because tourism is so important now in Slovenia. It just kind of booms. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Now, for a lot of Americans, it's a little confusing. Yugoslavia. We remember Yugoslavia mm-hmm. and Tito and everything and from the Cold War. Yugoslavia was definitely a unique mixture of nations, religions, languages. It was all there and uh, it and, was a pretty unique place. And these nations were proud nations for centuries and centuries. And then, well, leading up to World War One, I, I mean... It was one of you guys that uh, assassinated the guy from Vienna, right? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was a Serbian uh, nationalist from Bosnia and so on as it goes. Well, he was a pan-Slav activist. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then what they really wanted, well, at that point, Austria was ruling this vast empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire. A minority of the people in the Austro-Hungarian Empire spoke German, and there was a lot of Slavic people. And there was a movement for people to get a little more autonomy, a little more respect. And across what became Yugoslavia, there was this movement, wasn't there? That's right. The pan-Slavic movement was always present throughout the since the spring of nations, which came throughout Europe uh, in the mid-19th century. We know that in 1850, there were 
35 independent countries in what is today Germany, I believe. Mm -hmm. Italy was only an an ocean for intellectual type people. 1850, there was no Yugoslavia, no Germany, no Italy, and then all of a sudden, nationalism. That was the ism of the 1800s. That's right. The thing that united uh, countries like Germany and Italy was being one nation with one language. That was the idea. But in other cases, you had nations spread in uh, multinational uh, empires like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as the name itself implies, which uh, no longer could fit into the new model and vision of the new nation-state Europe. And this was being tested all over the world. The American Civil War was happening at the same time. They were testing, are we one nation or are we two nations? Now, the Slavic groups uh, took a little longer to get their uh, wish, but one of their agitators uh, forced things by assassinating the Archduke from, uh, of the Habsburgs from Vienna as he was down there on a military exercise. Vienna was showing off its power and, and the, the uh, pan-Slavs showed off their power. Uh, a lot of wars, a lot of killing. At the end of World War I, you got a country called Yugoslavia, the Union of the South Slavic people. Exactly, yes. But the German one worked, the Italian one worked, the (laughs) Yugoslavian one didn't really work, did it? No. There was no such thing as a Yugoslav language or a Yugoslav nation. These nations have never been in one country Mm. ever since the times of the Roman Empire. They belonged to different – they were ruled by different countries. They were ruled by – influenced by different cultures, languages. The differences just couldn't be greater. In fact, I remember my um, Eastern European Studies professor at the university told me in Yugoslavia – Historically, my neighbor's neighbor is my friend (laughs) because my neighbor is my enemy. We have a common enemy there. And I guess there was one real guy who rose above it all. That was Tito. Tito. What do you think about Tito? And now we got 20 years or whatever since he's been gone. Good things, I think. Well, as I remember him, I was just, you know, little. When When he died, I was four years old. But I still remember he had this... Um, figure you could just remember you know he had this personality this strength and I think he was just such a master to just keep these differences together and must have been a giant of a man to hold all these disparate countries together that had fought for centuries I mean the soil of Yugoslavia was just drenched in blood Mm -hmm. one can say that he basically kept Yugoslavia together through his charisma and he was the only one to succeed in that and when he died it was clear Yes, it was clear. Many people thought it would go right away when he died, but it still lasted on for another 10 years through a council of presidents. Uh, I want to talk more about Slovenia in particular, but right now we've got some calls on the line, and we've got Ted uh, in Seattle, and uh, Ted is planning a three-week anniversary to Italy, and he's considering a a side trip to Slovenia. Yeah, what what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I'm trying to get a good balance. My wife, Lisa, and I, as I say, we delayed this trip for for two years, our honeymoon, and and we'd like to see the major sites. I don't know if we'll get back to Italy or not, but I really would like some culture and village life and some quiet time. And and we'll be up by Venice, I'm certain. So I'm looking at the map. I'm thinking, well, would it make sense just to dip on into Slovenia for two or three days? Would I... Would I have that different a cultural experience than, than the surrounding area around northern Italy? Is it, is it so different from any? How is it so different? All right. How is it different? And could I do how it easy in such a it? short time? I'm mean, trying to make just one country. I've never done that for Europe. I've usually seen lots of countries. Right. Tina? Well, hello, Ted. Here's Tina. So yeah. um, if you are having a map in front of you, so just take a look. And from Venice uh-huh. to Trieste, just a couple of hours. Yeah, and like just then you can cross the border and you're in Slovenia already. It's very easy to get there. And then just turn like towards the mountains and that's the best sites which you can get. You can basically follow the river which is called Socha or S-O-C-A. And that's really a very beautiful valley with this beautiful, gorgeous Turkish river. And it also has some warm kind of memories of the First World War but really some significant sites. And you're basically also in the heart of the Triglau National Park, which is our only national park, but it's, this is just the prettiest area. So this is a chance to commune with nature in yeah. Slovenia. But, uh, and t- Ted is on a, it's like a romantic trip. Now, you're from Bled, uh, no, Tina. No, I'm from Bled. And a lot of people get married in Bled, right? Yes, that's talk, true. Talk a little bit about that. So, and if you go towards the mountains, you will find a beautiful, nice little place called Bled, and this is really magical. It's like a little lake with this island in the middle. There's a church. Inside the church, you have a bell of wishes. But if you're on a honeymoon, you have to do one really serious thing before getting to the island. 
and that is you will have to carry your bride up the stairs. And as locals say, if you can handle the steps, you will handle the marriage also. So, <laughs> how, many, how many stairs? There are 99 stairs, so you should maybe exercise. Ted, I, I, I don't know, Ted, how you and your wife stack up that way, but I've seen these, these grooms trying to carry their brides and their, all their fancy outfits up these 99 <laughs> stairs, and it is a great scene. I believe almost every Saturday you can see yeah, people every getting... every Saturday. It's yeah. just like bride after bride and exhausted broom, oh, yeah. groom after exhausted groom. <laughs> But I think you should definitely try that. It's really nice. You know, um, we've got a guidebook that both Tina and Marianne helped me with. Uh, It's our Best of Eastern Europe guidebook. And uh, we've got a lot of very romantic uh, lakeside hotels and restaurants that we recommend in Bled. Frankly, um, the most romantic place is sort of a James Bond fantasy. It's the Tito Villa. And it was Tito's hideaway when he would, he had famous people visit him there from all over Europe and so on. And now it's actually a hotel and it's right on the lake in a sumptuous garden. And then you can hire these traditional boats. What are they called? Platna boats. And you can go to the island or just be on the lake. Or walk around the lake a couple yes. hours and you're around the lake. About an hour and a half. That's Yeah. Oh. Ted, does that make sense to you? It sounds great. It sounds like a must-do. Oh. It sounds like uh, a much quieter, and uh, you get a lot more bang for your buck there. It well, you get, like certainly, because Italy is so popular now, and Italy is so expensive. Uh, Slovenia is not on the euro yet. Uh, what, what is your currency oh. called? The Slovenian tolar. The tolar. It still is till 2007, Sue. You better hurry. <laughs> Until 2007, <laughs> and then right. it goes to the euro. January. <laughs> and Ted, when, right. when you go to Slovenia, you're, you're really ahead of the curve because it doesn't have the crowds it deserves yet. But as uh, Tina was saying, it's you know literally two-hour drive from uh, Venice or an easy tr- train connection. You're talking right. about differences too, Ted, and that's a great thing about travel is to cobble together cultural variety. And by crossing over from Italy to Slovenia, you're going from European, Western European, uh, Romance uh, languages and all this, to Slavic, right? And, and that's a huge jump. You get different uh, cuisine, different, completely different language groups, and, and a lot of different history. Sounds great. Marianne, any and other suggestions for Ted there? Well, of course, uh, since I'm from Ljubljana, I would des- definitely suggest <laughs> taking at least a day trip down south uh, to visit the capital and uh, Furthermore, again, on the way back to Italy, perhaps stop by in the wonderful Karsik area, visit one of the f- famous cave sites, some of them even being uh, like the longest cave system in Europe, uh, some of the deepest underground canyon in Europe, things like that. Lovely Karsik villages, some lovely cuisine there, uh, slow food movement, and uh, lots of great experiences to be made there. Wow. And you can do it all by train. Train service is good then. Um, train service is not that good in Ljubljana. You can hire a car. It's Tina, you're a guide, and your yes. boyfriend's what, what a guide. Would I drive my Italian car in? No. Well, you could do that, but you could take the train to the into the cities and then hire a guide with a cart. I forget, Tina. What what do you charge for a day in your car? It's about a hundred euros. A hundred euros. Yeah. So for a hundred and thirty dollars, you would have a person like Tina who works this way with her car taking you for a drive through the, through the countryside. And there you got your transportation and your expert local guide and, uh, and uh, sidekick. Wow. That's, you know, that's, I'm glad we stumbled onto that tip because, you know, this is a great opportunity to employ a young, very good English-speaking teacher from Slovenia, and it gives you that inside track, and you don't have to do the driving, and you got a guide to boot. Tina, Tina was my guide for, for an entire long day as we explored all the National Park and all the World War I sites, and it was one of the highlights of my travels last summer. Great. Thanks and good luck on your uh, romantic adventures. All right. Thanks to everybody. Bye bye. All right. right. Bye bye. What's not to love about Slovenia? There's lots more coming up with Marianne and Tina. We're traveling with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at AA.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
This is Travel with Rick Steves. Call me at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll have Ed on the phone in Honolulu, and Ed's planning to drive from Venice, like Ted, uh, into Slovenia. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Getting any ideas from Marianne and Tina here? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, I have a little bit of a different uh, concern, however, that they might address, and that is that my wife and I are very much into wine and food, and uh, we know there's been an Italian influence in Slovenia as well as from other parts of, the, of Europe. But I wonder what they might tell us about the wines that we might uh, take a, a closer look at. Do they have food and wine in Slovenia? Oh, yeah, we have really good food and really good wine. And definitely if you're going um, from Venice through Trieste, yes. you will come quite close to the wine region, and that's Vipava Valley. And there are plenty of wine roads where you can go and just taste different types of wines. We have also one authentic sort of wine, which is called Teran, T-E-R-A-N, and it's a very good red wine, delicious one, and I think you should try that all. Oh, well, I certainly will. Yeah. Marianne, any tips on cuisine or wine? Cuisine, well, especially that area that uh, Tina mentioned towards the border with Italy, um, has some very scarce uh, landscape. There are not many natural resources. And throughout the centuries, they kind of developed a very special cuisine and a very strong slow, mo- slow food movement that you would find in Italy. So meaning uh, lots of courses with the small... Uh, amounts of food, but very high quality and very inventive kind of uh, mixtures of uh, different type and uh, very fun food. Is it fun and and, uh, creative? Is it also uh, like organic? Is that part of the food? Yes, exactly. That's a very important part of it. No chemicals. So in in general, in Slovenia, you'll find the best of the Germanic world, the best from, I don't know, if you're into schnitzel, sausages, and potatoes, and sauerkraut, like in Austria or Germany, Mm. you'll find that. If you're into pasta, into fish, into fine wines, you'll find that too. It's where baklava, strudel, and pasta that's right. Together. Yes. It all meets there. It's the perfect geographical place for north, south, east, west to meet, and so they do. And the cuisine is in other ways. Now, there wasn't there a famous fire water in, in Yugoslavia still? Oh, is yes. Slibovic, you mean? Slibovic. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about this, uh, <laughs> this uh, evil fire water. It's a plum brandy, a very strong plum brandy. And we usually always drink it just, you know, bottoms up because, you know, that's like a good exercise for the wrist. We don't sip that thing because it hurts only once. And definitely you should try that. But on top of that, we have a lot of other great liquors like Medica, which is the honey brandy mm-hmm. or the blueberry brandy. Ooh, blueberry and brandy. it's that's really nice. very good. So. And it kind of ties in with polka. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Come. When I was in Slovenia, polka was hip. I couldn't believe it. What did we meet? We met this guy, a famous guy up in uh, Bled, the, sort of the polka king. Yeah. And everybody's just wild about it. Now, is polka actually trendy or, or uh, people are into polka in, in Slovenia or not? Polka's coming back, I would say. <laughs> in a different form, though. It's uh, You always have the traditional folk music where polka is a very important part of it. But uh, there's, again, this pop folk music coming back. So you would have polka with some new, uh, I don't know, let's say techno beats in the background, uh, bringing the young crowds back again to the dance floor. All right. Ed, any more questions? No, but it sounds like I'm going to have to get a lot of exercise. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know what I like is something different. And I've been going back to Italy for 20 years, and I love Italy. But to spice it up with a little side trip into Slovenia, that gives your trip, uh, I think, a little extra something special, some carbonation. And I hope, that you can, uh, I hope that you can do that and enjoy Slovenia. Well, we will. We had the opportunity a few years ago to spend some time in Trieste, which we loved, and decided at that point Slovenia was next. Yeah. Well, good luck on your trip, and thanks for your call. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, Tina and Marianne, how is it that you two young Slovenes, you speak English like you've spoken it all your life. Here you are in Seattle visiting us in our, at our uh, place of work. Um, how is it that you're, you speak such good English and, and you're such citizens of the planet? Well, uh, being a small country, it's uh, not really a luxury. It's a necessity to speak foreign languages. So you'll find that pretty much everyone in places like Slovenia will speak at least one or two foreign languages. Especially for the younger generations, English is practically always in the first place and then German or Italian in second. So it's very easy to get around and uh, language is no obstacle. So you don't really have to deal with the quite difficult Slovenian. And we start teaching 
languages, like when we are very little, like 10 years of age, we started with English and everything is in English, like the movies. We don't have the problem like in Germany that they have everything synchronized. All we have is subtitles and I think you learn with that a lot. So you hear the, the popular hear, culture in, yes, the, in the movies especially, yes. on TV. Yes, TV, also. radio, yeah. yeah, music. That's right, we never dub it. We would never want to listen to uh, uh, Hollywood actors in Slovenia. <laughs> that would be interesting. It would be awful. <laughs> You've both been in the United States now for a few days. If you were writing a postcard home, what would you tell your, your family were the uh, surprising things about your experience here in America? Well, I would I just say that I really like coming here. I think it's really wonderful and I really like the people people in the states because I think you're all very friendly. Oh, thank you. And but come on, give us some yeah, what is some, what's it's different? It's what's interesting? But what's interesting is that everything is so big, especially for Slovenia because you know, in Slovenia you can drive around like in two hours, you're already on the other side of the country, but here, you know, you drive two hours to go for a beer. Doesn't make sense, I, but you know <laughs> it's, it's different, and that's why it's interesting. Yes, everything is big. Everything is uh, accessible. Um, cars. Well, um, I think we had earlier the mention that you would need a lot of exercise to go to Slovenia. We like to walk. We like sports. <laughs> have lots of uh, Olympic champions and World Cup champions in different sports and areas. Although we are such a small country, so very that's, sportive. That's right. If you look at the Olympic uh, medal standings and you see Slovenia up there in the same ballpark as Germany or Ireland or even America, you got to remember you've got two million people, a pool of two million That's people, right. not yes. even, to find those <laughs> athletes while we have a quarter of a billion here in our country. Let me talk a little bit about your um, respective um, hometowns and so on. Ljubljana is the capital of Slovenia. It's not a grand capital, but it's a rich capital and a capital with a great heritage. Uh, to me, it's a lot like Salzburg without Mozart. I mean, it doesn't have all the glitzy, you know, easy to promote stuff, but it has a great charm. It's on a river with the mountains in the background. Talk a little bit about Ljubljana, Marianne. That's right. Uh, Ljubljana is a lot like Salzburg since it is a distinctly uh, Austrian city from its heritage. It's uh, because of the Habsburg rule, right? That's right. It used to be for almost a thousand years a central part of uh, Austria, basically the capital of one of the Austrian provinces. When Slovenia was, uh, well, still a hundred years ago, there was no such thing as Slovenia on the maps. Um, so it's just about 10 miles from the geographical center of Slovenia. And uh, it's the perfect starting point to go in either direction. Basically, anywhere... You go and head with your car on the highway for longer than an hour, you'll come to a border, either in mm. um, Austria, Croatia, or Italy. And uh, it's often mentioned, but it really is true that within one hour and within the same hour, you can be just on uh, over 10 miles from the uh, city center already skiing on the first slopes in the Alps and within the same hour be on the Adriatic coast in Trieste. And, and I was uh, just driving there. The highways are excellent. And if you blink, you're in the next country. Now, <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, uh, the name of your capital, Ljubljana, is that it? Lub Ljubljana, yes. Say it again. Ljubljana. It's probably the capital in Europe that most people don't recognize. That's right. It's a young capital, so it's completely new on the maps, just like the name Slovenia. Uh, we it, get that confused with Slovakia. Of Slovenia. course. I bet half the Americans couldn't uh, identify which is which. So Usually we people are trying to convince us that we are actually mean Slovakia and not Slovenia. Uh, Tina and I, even getting over here on the, the plane, often encounter, uh, even when the customs inspection and so on, questions like, is that a real country? What is it? What Who is it? Is not it? Where it's, not where is it's, it? What it's is incredible. it? <laughs> now, if for, just as a memory, uh, Jolter, because I, I, I have to think carefully about this too, Czechoslovakia was the country we all grew up knowing up north, That's and that right. has nothing to do with Slovenia. Czechoslovakia, the, the Czechs and the Slovaks, and it was a union, and it goes from left to right, Czech, Slovak, okay? Well, they, they got their independence, and then they split, and you got the Czech Republic, and you've got Slovakia, which is the little-known eastern half of former Czechoslovakia. Slovenia, on the other hand, is the most, I would say, lucky part of the former Yugoslavian Federation of Slavic States. It was just underneath Austria. It knew what Austria was like. It was more in more developed, more prosperous, I think, more affluent than the rest of Yugoslavia. So when Yugoslavia fell apart, you guys were the ones that got out without any great war, without any great killing. Is that right? That's right. Uh, Slovenia was very fortunate since it was... Uh 
the the most northern of all the Yugoslav republics, uh, didn't have any other ethnic minorities, so uh, there were no open issues. And even from before, it had a very distinct Western heritage, since it is the most Western of all the Slavic nations. And uh, also with, uh, you can see it also in Ljubljana, uh, which uh, always in the past kind of grew as a city, but halfway on the trading route between Venice and Vienna. So you had those Western connections, but you are distinctly Slavic. In that's right. It's a Slavic nation, but... Uh, so that's the border between Germanic and Romantic and Slavic. That's right. That, the right. country, it is a Slavic country with a distinctly Slavic identity, but we tend to absorb the best of the two worlds. So we like... Slovenians are very hardworking people. We like to be organized, run things on time. But at the same time, we, we share this special um, love for life. Uh, you'll find that in the open-air cafes, in the markets. Um, we like uh, good food, good wine, and a good time with our friends. So combining the best of the two worlds in every aspect of everyday life. How's your democracy lately? Do you need any help from us? (laughs) I think our democracy is doing just fine. Um, Well, we don't have any big scandals. It's pretty stable. Have a very similar system like the Italians, which uh, in the past saw from one month or even from one week to another, governments coming and going. You know, I think Europe in general doesn't have as strong of an executive branch as we do in America. That's right, you yes. You have a parliamentary system and and the president is not the, – the prime minister the prime is really minister is. just the, the first mm-hmm. of the representatives. I hear your prime minister just actually is seen in the markets and he's just part of the family. Yeah, most of the politicians, I don't know, in Ljubljana you'll see the lady mayor or um, any member of the government walking without any bodyguards or anything around mm-hmm. the city. You can address them to a certain issue or something. Yeah. So it's very casual and it's the kind of very personal down-to-earth phase that we try to keep – uh, not only in Ljubljana, but generally in Slovenia. I sure enjoyed my visit with you last summer in your beautiful capital, Lub- Ljubljana. That's right. Did I say it right? Say it again. Yes, Ljubljana. Ljubljana. Let's go to an easier place to pronounce right now. Uh, tourists, when they go to Slovenia, I would say most of them actually jump over Ljubljana and they end up in Bled, right, Tina? Yes, that's true. Tell a me, uh, of, no, Bled is, what, what's, the, what's the big attraction of Bled? Yeah, well, a lot of people, first of all, they don't... When you say, okay, Slovenia, they would know Blait more than they would know Ljubljana. That's the first thing. But I think Blait is just, it it reminds you a bit of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have the lake, you have the mountains surrounding it, the Julian Alps. And castle on the hill. The castle on the hill. The town. It's so delightful. <laughs> They've got famous pastries right there. you got a famous rowing crew. Yes. And uh, it's a good jumping off port for enjoying the national park. Uh, the Soka. Let's talk a little bit about that. The 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 front. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but there's a huge front uh, in World War One. We always think of the Western Front between France and Germany, but tell us about this front between Slovenia and Italy. Yeah, it was basically at the time when during the First World War, and it was the Austro-Hungarians fighting the Italians, and it was basically going on on the top of the mountains. Now, I've seen this, and I mean, it's hard to believe this, but the valleys were quiet uh, as far as any yes. sort of killing, but you could hear the gunshots, and then with binoculars, you look at the staggering peaks. I couldn't climb there without a helicopter to help me, and uh, you actually see the fortifications dug in or built onto it yeah, the way little on caverns. the peaks. They were on the peaks, and they were just um, doing this like a line they right. wanted to protect. And it was just unbelievable. And over a million lives were lost there. Over a million lives? Yes. And today there's an excellent museum about the World War I battlefront. And it's called the, the Socha, is that right? The Kobarit Museum. The Kobarit yeah. Museum. And what was the front called? Uh, the Aizonsa Front, Soshka Fronta. And Okay, so, yeah. so that's something for World War, War I buffs might want to check out. Also, you've got the famous horses. I mean, we all know about yeah. the... Uh, uh, Lipizzaner stallions, right? That's and right. in the days that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was bigger, they would raise their horses in present-day Slovenia. Yes, because, you know, we were a part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, and that's why we had the horses in and the place called Lipica. Lipica. So that's where the Lipizzaner, the beautiful white horses, come from. Now today, the Austro- everybody goes to Vienna to see the great yes. horses, and uh, they raise them, I guess, in Austria. You start World War One, you lose it. You lose your vast empire, and so you got today a pretty insignificant little country with a world-class capital, and a few, you know, their navy is a few police boats in the Danube now, I guess. But um, Slovenia still has the original Lipitzaner farm, and you're you're raising these horses. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you can tour them. 
or you can go there and see how they. You can you can tour them. You can also see the stud farm, and you can also see the Spanish riding school technique. And there's horse. There's uh, performances. Yes. All right. Yes. And for me, last summer I, I checked out the caves, and you've got these incredible caves, and I swear. These are huge. It was like a Tolkien uh, fantasy to go into these caves. They're just vast, and they're carved by rivers, and there's still raging rivers at the bottom of them, and these fascinating uh, elevated stairways through the caves, and it's quite a hike. You have to go with a, with mm-hmm. a guide and uh, yeah. flashlights and all this sort of thing. Several caves. They're, discuss- they're discussed in our book, which ones are the best. But talk a little bit about this karst, because that's the, that's the mm-hmm. ge- ge- geography behind yeah. it, isn't it? Or yeah. the geology, I'm sorry, behind it. So karst basically comes from Slovenia, that word. Karst means stone, and that's the area where, you know, there's a lot of stone and kind of underground movements. Caves, underground rivers, disappearing lakes, uh, valleys, which go and carve um, U letters or V letters, and it's just unbelievable what's underneath there. You would never say that in a small Slovenia you would find huge caves like There's a lot are. of variety in your country. We have an email from Bruce yeah. in Arizona, and let me just read this to you and you can comment. Bruce visited Slovenia on a tour and on his own. He says it was pleasant, peaceful, and cheaper than Austria. He said, don't miss the Skoyan Caves. Is that what it is? Skoyan? Skoyan, yes. Skoyan Caves. They probably inspired Tolkien's Mor- Moriah. Uh, Slovenia may have the quintessential European town experience. He wants to go back again. That's a nice comment, isn't it, from Arizona? <laughs> a lot of people are discovering Slovenia. Hey, uh, just very quickly, uh, Marianne already mentioned about language. Uh, it's funny. It's sort of interesting. These small language groups in Europe are more likely to speak English because they grow up hearing English. And your world is very small if all, if all you speak is Slovenian. Yes. Right. But what's interesting is that we have also in a country of two million people, we have so many different dialects that if you go just like two hours away, you won't understand them anymore. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Strong dialects. Yeah, really right. strong. Uh, you don't need a visa. As a matter of fact, all you need is a passport if you're an American, and you're part of the EU now. So yes. I just right. did this. You just are waved through between Italy or Austria and Slovenia. You go to Croatia, and you have a border stop because you are the end of Europe right now. Um, transportation, um, well, it's there's easy air in and out. When we do our tours, it's tough to fly out of Uh, Dubrovnik, for instance, but we find it's very easy to fly out of Ljubljana. Room and board, one of the highlights for me in my visit from a budget point of view was staying in people's homes. It's quite expensive, frankly, to sleep in Ljubljana, and you need a guidebook listing, and there's youth hostels and a few humble hotels, but no B&Bs that I found. But in the countryside, lots of people are renting rooms. What's the local word for bed and breakfast? Uh, Kmitschki tourism. So agriturismo, as you would find in Italy, would be the usual thing you would look for. But otherwise, also just signs along the street like Sobe, meaning rooms. S-O-B-E. That's right. My wife and I have had beautiful experiences staying with people's homes in Slovenia in Soba. You will see the signs as you go. Marianne and Tina, I'm fascinated by your country. I've learned a lot with this discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Slovenia, my happy peace and Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, it's another session of Road Trip USA with our friend Jamie Jensen. He'll take your calls and offer tips on exploring Indian country and the scenic back roads of the great Southwest. There's lots of open road ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're traveling in our own beautiful country around the United States road tripping, and I've got with me Jamie Jensen. Jamie has spent 15 years and driven nearly half a million miles writing his thousand-page tome on road tripping around our country. It's called Road Trip USA. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, we've uh, you know we've talked with you several times, and we've been featuring different corners of our country. And right now, I'm thinking Southwest, uh, Southwest of the United States. If you want to give us a sort of a sampler of the uh, delights of the Southwest, if you're considering a road trip, what would we be uh, considering? Oh, think Wild West movies, John John Ford Stagecoach, Monument Valley, these Red Rock, Rock Mesas, wonderful sandstone cliffs thousands of feet high, Native American cliff dwellings tucked away halfway up the mesa or on top of the mesa. It's just a wonderful region with a mix of you know incredible scenery and diverse cultures, so it's well worth spending some time. What's the best season for exploring the Southwest? Depends on what you want to do. It's quite high elevation, so it's not... 
you know, people would think, oh, it's desert, it's going to be hot in summer. It, it can be hot, but summer is really the main time to go because it actually, you know, it gets quite snowy. Like the Grand Canyon even, which huh. is probably the main attraction for most people, they think of the southwest. You know, it's like 8,000 feet. It's snowed in nine months of the year probably. Okay. You can still go there, but it's not the kind of desert experience I think everyone's expecting. So it's not going to be your brutal heat situation in the, dead, in the heat of summer. Well, there can be when you get down, you know, Phoenix, Tucson. It's incredibly right. diverse. I was there in the springtime. I was 80 degrees in Phoenix. The next morning, I woke up in a snowstorm in Roswell, New Mexico. So wow. it, it, you do have to kind of be aware of the weather, but every season has its charms. For now, sure. in, I'm talking with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA, and, and Jamie designs his book uh, according to different highways across the country. And you've got, of course, Route 66 going through Albuquerque, and then south of that, you've got the, the Southern Pacific Road that cuts through El Paso on the way to Dallas. How would you compare those two roads, Jamie? Well, um, Route 66 is, you know, legendary probably for all the kind of roadside Americana, wonderful neon signs. And it also, it takes you to the Grand Canyon, it takes you to Santa Fe, those sorts of places. So it's got a lot going for it. Um, Further south, right along the Mexican border, um, is old US-80, used to be called the Old Spanish Trail. And it goes through, you know, Wild West ghost towns, you know, places like Tombstone and uh, Bisbee, an old mining town where there's this gigantic kind of man-made Grand Canyon of an old copper pit. So they're very different, and there's roads linking them north and south. There's all sorts of different places you can get to um, through these places. And I just try and kind of point people, you know, take this road if you want to get through Monument Valley. So you go the the San Diego, Tucson, El Paso, Dallas road. That's uh, the old uh, 80, Highway 80? Yes. Yeah, and El Paso is a kind of, you know, wonderful border town with Ciudad Juarez. There's, you know, millions of people on either side of the Rio Grande River here. Do you nip into Mexico with your car? Um, I'd say walk. I mean, you can get across Mexico very, you know, across the border very easily. Coming back, people can wait for hours because of all these security concerns and et cetera. So it's much easier to just nip across on foot and a lot less anxiety. Well, nip across on foot in a case where you've got two towns that grow up uh, just across the border from each other. Oh, well, they do. These places live on the cross-border trade. So you've got that, you know, you've got Mexico, but you've also got, you know, within America, there's these independent nations of the Navajo and the Hopi and the Pueblo people. So there's all kinds of... Yeah, tell me about this Indian culture. And, uh, I mean, uh, in living today in uh, reservations and in in independent little communities, as well as uh, archaeological sites like cliff dwellers. Yes, and the connections, I think there are more and more kind of people are taking more pride. There's a lot of kind of native pride there. The Navajo are the biggest, both in size and population, Native American nation within the borders of the United States. Tell me about Navajo cuisine. Ooh, Navajo tacos. Yeah, the road trip uh, thing to go look for there. It's basically what they call fry bread. It's um, hmm. basically a, kind of like a sloppy joe, but a lot more tasty. Okay, if some road tripper wants to connect with uh, um, American Indian culture, what are the top two or three sites that way? Well, I think um, for the kind of photogenic experience. I mean, Taos Pueblo, north of Santa Fe, is just fabulous. It's probably the oldest inhabited city in North America. It's been there at least since 1100 A.D., long before Columbus. It's not a museum. It's a vibrant living culture today, this place. It is indeed. I mean, a lot of people, you know, the tourist trade has undeniably had an impact on these places, and people, you know, things do cater to tourists. They're not just happen to be weaving a rug, but they're doing it so that hope, in the hope that someone will buy it. So it's, you know, it's not like you're discovering this, you know, you're not the first person to come and visit them. But it is still remarkable that these people have managed to preserve their ways of life despite various invasions from Spanish, Mexican, and Americans. They're still there. Now, what if you grew up like me, uh, watching these westerns and thinking about Wyatt Earp and Tombstone? Uh, what's some of the uh, Wild West sites you might want to put on your checklist of uh, adventures? Well, Tombstone is definitely the place. The OK Corral is is still there, and they have gunfights daily. I think you can mm-hmm. buy tickets for the eleven o'clock or the two o'clock gunfight. Wow. So, I mean, which gives you a sense of you know how these places are. They do kind of get people wanting to re-experience these kind of childhood fantasies of gunfighters. But they're also they are the real thing. This is where it happened, and you you realize you know you go a mile in any direction from these places, and it is still pretty much the Wild West. There's open-range country, there are ranches, there are cowboys and pickup trucks instead of on horseback, but it hasn't changed that much. I mean, Phoenix and Tucson are, are huge metropolises, and so they are kind of, you know, like the modern world, but you travel in any direction from those, and you're, you're definitely out in the wild. Tell me about some of these uh, abandoned mining towns and ghost towns and so on. 
Yeah, I, I love these old, um, like Bisbee is one of my favorite places. It's high up in the mountains, just above the kind of New Mexico, Arizona, Mexico border. Um, was one of the biggest copper mines in the country in, you know, up to through the 1950s, and they shut the mine. And all these buildings were just kind of left. Everybody went home, and these kind of hippies and other sort of artistic folk moved in, and now there's quite a thriving tourist trade, hmm. which is you know, kind of a nice way to revitalize these places. They appreciate the culture and the history of it and the old buildings. And so they're funky arts communities, not just abandoned, uh, windy towns. Yeah, there aren't many abandoned places. Most of the abandoned places have kind of blown off the map, I think. The real kind of ghost towns are are more or less gone. There are odds and ends of them. There's a place called um, Chloride, which is just south of um, Las Vegas, in the um, in Arizona, which is that kind of crusty kind of ghost town where they've got houses made out of old beer bottles and wow. things like that. So it's actually called chloride. Chloride, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm my, what town. I call US 93 route, coming south from Lake Mead. Now, looking at the map, there's this fascinating one spot in the country where four states come together at the same spot in a cross, a perfect cross, the Four Corners. Tell me about that. Yeah, four corners. You can you can stand and put your hands and feet in four different states. Yeah. And that is, is, again, on the Navajo Reservation. So it's quite interesting, this kind of little bit of America that's actually, you know, belongs to another, with the, you know, a sovereign nation. Is there actually so, a spot where the four states come together and you can literally stick one arm and leg on each state? Yes, they've got a little, you know, each state seal. So I think you can stand or put your hands on each one. And you wait in line there. to do that? <laughs> so it's fun. It's a good photo opportunity. And this is a good place to check out uh, Navajo culture. Well, it's in the center. Yeah, there's lots of things around it. The thing itself is kind of in the middle of nowhere, and you definitely have to look for, you know, to get there. But within 50 miles in any direction, you've got one of my favorite national parks, Mesa Verde, Hmm. in southwest Colorado, where the most beautiful cliff dwellings, you know, these very enigmatic ruins halfway up these thousand-foot sandstone cliffs. Can you climb in those cliff dwellers, or are they cut off to the public now? For you can. You actually get to them from above. They, they oh. live more or less on the mesa tops, and no one's entirely sure of what the historic relations were or what happened to the people who lived there. But just but, tourists are free to roam around. I'm not, I think you can take guided tours, because they obviously want to protect the resources there. But you can right. climb through Balcony House and some of these fabulous places and dream of what it would be like to live in something like that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA. And if you want to get in on the conversation, give us a call. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We have Les on the line in Miami. Les, thanks for your call. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. You thinking about uh, taking a trip through the Southwest? Definitely. We haven't been there in a few years, and I'd love to go back. What are you thinking about? uh, Do you have a question for Jamie? Uh, The question I have for Jamie is his view on what I think is our favorite drive in the entire United States, which is US 550, the part known as the Million Dollar Highway between Durango and Uray, Colorado. Fabulous. Yeah. You obviously, it's a great road with a wonderful kind of story behind it. You know, I think people now think the million dollars is because the views are so stupendous, but apparently it was um, paved with um, ore from an old gold mine that turned out to be loaded with silver. So they, I think people were tempted to dig up, dig up the road as soon as they built it and mine the ore from it. But wonderful scenery up there. I mean, that part of Colorado is just loaded with, it's right very near Telluride, which a lot of people have heard of because of skiing and things like that. But just wonderful old mining towns and scenery and mountains and oh, wildness, too. The San Juan Mountains, I think, are some of the wildest mountains left in the lower 48, where there's still grizzly bears and you know, people do a lot of Jeep tours there because there's so few roads anywhere. But Les, you've done quite a bit of road tripping, and the Million Mile Highway is your favorite uh, stretch of highway anywhere. Right, Rick, and that includes some of your favorite roads, for example, in Italy and Switzerland. All right. Now, what, what is so good for in your, in your assessment of the Million Dollar Highway? Basically, one of the nice things is you can do it in a couple of different loops. The, 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 you're way up at a very high altitude, usually between about 9,000, and then when you get to the top at Red Mountain Pass, about 11,000 feet. And it's one of those things where you'll drive everybody crazy by having to stop at every turn to, make a, to take another picture of yeah. what you're seeing. And you can do a loop, and then, as, as Jamie was saying, go back around uh, another road that takes you past Telluride, which is one of the most spectacular areas you'll ever see, and it's very close to Mesa Verde. 
plus the fact the other thing you can do if you want is you can take the road one way from Durango to Silverton and then take the train that goes through the river valley that goes back. It really makes a spectacular day. Wow. And this is a wonderful old steam train, a historic mining train, which is really just a fabulous ride. It goes on down into Durango. So, yeah, that's a great part of the world to spend some time. Now, where are we here from Denver, if somebody's going to use that as a springboard for this adventure in Colorado? Ooh, uh, I'd, you're probably 300 miles southwest of there. Oh, so you're way in the southwest corner of Colorado, near Four Corners. Yeah, very near. You're 50 miles from ah. Arizona. So that's high country there, the Four Corners. Yeah, very high. Yeah, most of the Southwest, it surprises people how yeah. high it, it gets, because you're on the Colorado Plateau. You're up there, you know, six, seven thousand, eight thousand 8,000 feet when you're not even in the mountains. So, Les, you've done a lot of road prepping in the United States? Yes, I have. More, more so out West, actually, than, than uh, in the South. It's a little bit more interesting out in the mountains. Why do you say that? Uh, when, when you live in a nice, flat place like Miami, you like a little bit more than just driving for 10 hours of flat. Okay. So you fly, do you, do you from Miami, you fly all the way into some jumping off point and rent a car, or do you drive all the way from Miami? Usually what we would do is to fly into Denver, and we've done a lot of the area that, uh, that Jamie's familiar with in Canyon de Chez and, and the Painted Desert and things of that area. It's just the whole southwestern corner of the country is just magnificent. i got to say, I'm not much of a road tripper, but it sounds like southwest is the uh, king of road tripping country. Definitely, yeah, for all sorts of good reasons. Yeah. All right. Hey, well, Les, thanks for your call. Thank you. Good luck in your travels. Thank you. Dory from Corte Madeira emailed us, and she's a, a woman who likes to drive alone on a road trip uh, and says, how safe are the non-freeways in South Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas for women traveling or camping alone? Ooh, I mean, that's always a, an issue. Scare, you do hear about terrible things happening, but in my experience, the farther away you get from the freeways, um, the safer you'll be, because freeways are you know, where you get the drifters and the kind of people who don't belong where they are. They're in flux going other places, hmm. and strange things happen there. So, I mean, there's a mistaken sense of security in numbers, I think, because nobody's stopping along the freeway. And if you're in trouble, you know, everyone's racing past at 70 miles an hour. They're not going to know what's going on. But in these smaller towns, the smaller roads, people do stop. If your car breaks down, you, they, they, you still find these good Samaritans out there who mm -hmm. can slow down and see what's going on. So, you know, I don't want to be uh, legally liable <laughs> for any of right. this advice. But I think, you know, off the roads, you get these scary... B-movies sometimes, but right. Tulane America is wonderfully safe, and hospitable, welcoming. Well, all you can do, Jamie, is explain your experience. You've spent 15 years and driven nearly half a million miles, uh, and you really feel pretty safe in your work. I've had a fabulous time, and I hitchhiked. When I first hit these roads, you know, more than 15, more like 35 years ago, I was, you know, just out there with me and my thumb in a backpack, and, you know, would get picked up, finding work along the way, and meeting people in these small towns. And right. That's what really got me hooked on, you know, seeing that part of America, rather than just bombing along the interstates. And we have Roberta on the line in Carmichael, California. Roberta, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. My goodness, it's nice to talk to you. We've never gotten on a trip with you, but we've enjoyed, you have wonderful tour guides, so we know you're wonderful, too. Oh, well, thank you. And right now, we're, uh, normally I'm talking about Europe, but I'm having the joy of uh, talking with Jamie Jensen, who's the author of Road Trip USA, and we're staying in our own country for a little while. Well, that and, sounds uh, good to us. Yeah, tell me about your uh, favorite uh, road traveling. Well, we left our home in Sacramento, and it went up 395, which is a highway, but a two-lane highway, and you go to the north east corner of California. And we are both Californians, and we grew up a long time ago when California was not as crowded as it is now, and it reminds us of that country. And our destination were two, the Lava Beds National Monument, which is really quite a fascinating place. It has um, cinder cones, and it was, well, my book tells me it was from Medicine Lake Volcano. And there are these cinder cones and caverns and tubes. Also, it's California's one major Indian war was fought there with a man named Captain Jack. It's a very sad story, I might add, <laughs> that, as often our Indian stories are. Yeah. And uh, also, we went, my husband is a real fisherman. We went to what's called the Warner Mountains, and we actually went up to a place called a guard station where we really camped in the wild, Patterson Guard Station. And he had some pretty good fishing. And then on the other side of the Warner Mountains is what's east side is called Surprise Valley. And the story is on the west side, it's the high desert and rather desolate. But over this, you go over the mountains and down, or actually a gravel road, and you get to this little valley 
and the reason it was called the Surprise Valley, that after the gold rush, some of the farmers from the Midwest went looking for land they could use, and they found that they could have their cattle there because the Warner Mountains had enough snow to have the rain in the summer. So anyway, it's a section of California that is not as crowded, and is we found it very interesting and enjoyable. Yeah. Wow. Now, I think just basically to think of Northeast California, I've never even thought of going there, but that's, yeah. that's where you find the old, from coming from a Californian, that's where you find the uh, California before it got big, huh? Right. There's a little town called Alturas. They even have a visitor center and a few old buildings, as you know, most places do today. Right. Re- yeah. Roberta, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Well, thanks a lot. Happy travels. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been enjoying some ideas on exploring our own country with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA. Thanks, Jamie, so much for helping us out as we put together our road trip dreams to explore our own beautiful country. Well, thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on today's program and others in this series. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. Some of the people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Robin Goddard, Technical support from Dan Suter and Matt Iglesias. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.